The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Tyler McBrien, managing editor of Lawfare with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for May 27th, 2023. Earlier this month, a report published in Environmental Science and Technology estimated that half of Phoenix residents would need medical attention if a multi-day power blackout and heat waves struck at the same time, the likelihood of which is heightened by climate change. For today, I chose an episode from April 16th, 2019, in which Benjamin Wittes talked to Michelle Milton about why we should think about climate change as a national security threat, the challenges of viewing climate change through this paradigm, the long-standing relationship between climate change and the U.S. national security apparatus, and how climate change may affect global migration. Needless to say, over four years after this episode aired, climate change is still a threat to national security. I'm Michaela Fogel, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 16th, 2019. Since November, Lawfare contributor Michelle Melton has run a series on our website about climate change and national security, examining the implications of the threat, as well as U.S. and international responses to climate change. Melton is a student at Harvard Law School. Prior to that, she was an associate fellow in the Energy and National Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where she focused on climate policy. She and Benjamin Wittes sat down last week to discuss the series. They talked about why we should think about climate change as a national security threat, the challenges of viewing climate change through this paradigm, the longstanding relationship between climate change and the U.S. national security apparatus, and how climate change may affect global migration. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 409, Michelle Melton on Climate Change as a National Security Threat. Let's start with the premise. Climate change is a lot of things. It's an, we tend to think of it in terms of ecological consequences, effects on communities, particularly coastal communities, and impacts on all kinds of things. Why should we think of it in a national security context as opposed to a either smaller or larger ways of thinking about it? Sure. There are several reasons why we should think about climate change as a national security threat. Uh, The first is that it has a tangible and already present impact on military installations and readiness. And the Pentagon has been talking about this for a long time. Just this January, they released a report that was mandated by Congress on which of their U.S.-based installations are vulnerable to sea level rise, increased wildfires, uh, even severe weather, 
erosion from storms. So it definitely is already having an impact on military installations and has an impact on military readiness. So for that reason, military leaders have consistently said, both in the Trump administration and in the administrations preceding the Trump administration, that climate change is a national security threat. There's another reason why people say that climate is a national security threat, and that has to do with the impact of climate change on stability, especially in places of the world where there's a lack of governance capacity. And there's four basic scenarios that are discussed scenarios may be the wrong word, but four basic reasons or vectors through which climate change is expected to impact stability. And the first is threats to food security, which may result in competition among land use um, and the use of food as a political tool, which uh, could threaten places that are suffering from food insecurity, but could also affect places like China, uh, which is very vulnerable to drought and high temperatures, which all affects, obviously, uh, agricultural production. The second is the impact on water resources. And this is both an issue internally to countries, but also internationally. There are about 200 river basins that are multinational, and about 13 have five or more nations that form part of the watershed, which could lead to international tensions or competition over water resources, uh, such as we've seen in the Jordan and Euphrates rivers in the Middle East, the Nile, Zambezi, and Niger rivers in Africa, the Ganges in Asia, and to a lesser extent, the Colorado River Basin in North America. So there, there have already been concrete examples in the past of countries using water as a weapon. So for example, North Korea dammed a tributary of the Han River above Seoul, which the South, uh, South Korea worried would be used to threaten Seoul. And there were also recent concerns that ISIS would blow up a dam in Iraqi territory that they controlled flooding Baghdad. So there's concern that those types of incidents may increase, but there's also concern about decreasing water availability within countries leading to instability. Uh, the third sort of what I called scenarios, but are less scenarios than just issues, is competition in the Arctic over shipping and resource development as ice in the Arctic melts uh, and becomes less seasonal. We are already seeing an increase in interest among both Arctic littoral states and non-littoral states such as China in the Arctic. And that's, again, about shipping and resource development. And the fourth really big Internet issue challenging international stability is migration from sea level rise and other issues, including some of the issues that I already mentioned, like food insecurity. So in the medium term, these issues are really exacerbating existing issues over stability in the world. And it's probably manageable, although there will be a lot of suffering. But the big question is, is this going to be incredibly destabilizing over the next hundred years, what happens when some of the world is no longer habitable, if and when that happens? Uh, what do we do with with the people and how does that impact international stability? So normally when we talk about a national security threat, there is a bad guy. You know, when we talk about ISIS as a national security threat, the implication is that, you know, there are some bad guys who want to do bad things that are adverse to our interests, right? When we talk about nation state national security threats, some state is doing something that is 
adverse to our interests in the national security arena, which we think of as you know, bad and requiring confrontation. One of the oddities of talking about climate change through a national security lens is that this element is missing. And it does amount quite literally to a chain of events in which kind of atmospheric, in this case, literally atmospheric conditions, create conditions that exacerbate other national security problems. Is it fair to say that this is a situation in which, you know, there really isn't a bad guy and is thus kind of challenging to think of national in in a conventional national security vocabulary? Sure, that's a great question. And that that is an, a critique that has been raised actually decades ago by a political scientist named Daniel Dudney, uh, who is at Johns Hopkins. And he he says, like you say, that environmental problems generally and climate change specifically do not really fit within a national security paradigm. And he outlines several reasons for that. He says analytically and conceptually, but also organizationally, it doesn't really make sense to link national security and environmental degradation. He says, basically, not everything that causes a decline in human well-being is a national security threat. Uh, The scope and source of environmental and national security threats are different within a national security context than they are for environmental problems. And as you said, the degree of intention involved is different. So environmental threats are largely unintentional side effects of routine activities like driving your car. And the organizational and bureaucratic structures necessary to address national security problems is different than the organizational and bureaucratic structure that you need to address environmental problems. So, for example, national security threats generally involve secretive, hierarchical, and centralized organizations, often removed from civil society, in contrast to the bureaucratic response of environmental organizations. So the criticism, I take it, is is about the threat, but it's also can be boiled down to, simplistically and perhaps unfairly, uh, not everything that causes damage is a national security threat. And calling something that threatens life, property, or well-being a national security threat drains that term of its meaning. I think that there's a deeper truth there, and this is not Dudeney's thought, this is my thought, which is that national security institutions exist not just to identify threats, but to combat them. And so we're sort of uncomfortable saying that this is a national, that this should be a national security threat, or some people may be uncomfortable saying that because there's no amount of military firepower that will stop climate change. In fact, military firepower by burning fossil fuels contributes to climate change. That is certainly true, although it is uh, not the primary contributor. (laughs) So... I think that that is true as far as it goes. It's hard to see the military or the intelligence community as a useful tool in blunting the direct threat of climate change. So I I definitely agree that there is a mismatch there. And I think I have two responses. On the one hand, I think that that is true as far as it goes, but that doesn't change the fact that there is a threat and that threat is exacerbated by climate change, a threat to readiness and military installations, and a threat to global stability, which I outlined earlier, those threats are real, and we shouldn't necessarily think only of climate change in a national security paradigm. Now, that's not to say that climate change doesn't fit into a national security paradigm, but I think that it's a totally fair critique to say there are limitations to thinking of climate change within this national security paradigm. 
And connected to this, Daniel Dudney, the political science professor that I was referring to, makes another point that I think is really useful for people who speak about climate change in a national security context, such as myself, to keep in mind, which is that efforts to harness the emotive power of nationalism to help mobilize environmental awareness or environmental action uh, could actually be counterproductive. So people and environmentalists and um, national security people who say that the linkage may not be descriptive, right? Climate change is not descriptively, analytically, conceptually a national security problem for the reasons that you outlined. We don't really care because it has political utility. So we think that it's a way of stimulating action by cloaking an environmental problem in the urgency of national security. And Dudney's response, and I think that he's right about this, is that this is likely to fail, or it's as likely to fail as it is to succeed politically. Because a national security paradigm is going to result in an us versus them mentality, which fits poorly with an environmental paradigm because, as you said, paraphrasing here, the enemy is us. The enemy is not China or India. It's it's everybody. It's us. It's you driving your car. It's me uh, throwing out extra food that I have. So the reason that this may fail politically is for two reasons. The first is if we think of climate change as a national security problem, as you suggested, we might focus on the pollution of other countries rather than looking at what we have done. And you really already see this quite clearly in the U.S. with regards to developing countries like China and India. We blame them. Look at how much China is polluting. We can't do anything unless they do. So we sort of have already started blaming them as if that's exculpatory for our own actions. And second, when we think about climate change in a national security context, we may tend to retrench into nationalism when we really do need an international solution to this problem. And Third, and this is me speaking, again, not Dudney, using the national security community to actually address climate change may be harmful to those institutions, uh, as it likely requires them to undertake unfamiliar missions, including domestic missions, which uh, may erode sort of the, uh, the wall that we have built up in many places between especially the intelligence community and civil society domestically in the U.S. All right. So in other words, descriptively, there is a deep-seated relationship or set of relationships between national security and climate change. That relationship is an uncomfortable fit, both descriptively and normatively, with what we traditionally think of as national security challenges. And there are substantial reasons why you might want to be careful about overframing this in the national security vocabulary. Is that is that a reasonable summary? That's exactly right. All right. And yet, uh, one of the really interesting components of the work that you've done recently on Lawfare is this relentless cataloging of the degree to which the national security community has, unlike the current political leadership of the country, not been in denial about this subject and how there is this pretty long and pretty consistent history of intelligence and military components identifying the various national security threats emanating from human-induced climate change. So uh, give us a sense of that history and, uh, you know, to what extent is this a situation where, you know, with all the caveats that we've just discussed, the national security community actually has its eyes pretty wide open on the subject. 
Yeah, so the history goes back actually much farther than most people realize. Climate science is heavily indebted to the national security establishment uh, and the Cold War more broadly. Uh, it was actually the military that funded the basic science necessary to understand climate change all the way back as early as the 1940s. And when I say that, I'm not saying that, that the military consciously was funding climate science back in the 1940s, but the military provided funding for basic geophysical research and set up and established weather monitoring networks and other data gathering, which was useful in developing the field of climate science, and in that way furthered scientific understanding in the field itself. So military patronage was absolutely critical for the development of earth sciences uh, in general, but also specifically for climate science. And if you think about it, it makes sense. For the Air Force, understanding weather and atmospheric circulation is critical. Aviators need to know about conditions in the upper atmosphere. For the Navy, understanding the ocean, its surf and swell, its thermal and salinity characteristics is essential for the fundamental mission of the service. And oceanographic research is a critical component of climate science, which has been funded heavily or was in the past funded heavily by the Office of Naval Research. And understanding the climate and weather in the Arctic was critical to the success of military operations in the Arctic, which was a, an essential theater during the Cold War. For example, the U.S. had a, an Air Force base uh, in Greenland, and therefore they really wanted to know what it was like to land on snow. And so they studied the properties and conditions of snow, and they figured out as early as the 19, late 1940s that the Arctic was melting faster than anyone could have anticipated. They didn't know why, but they were funding research, all this geophysical research, which eventually led to a greater understanding of climate change. So to give specific examples, military funding helped establish the first um, carbon dioxide monitoring stations in Hawaii and Antarctica. And both the Office of Naval Research and the Atomic Energy Commission funded studies about the dispersion of radioactive particles after a nuclear explosion, which led to a breakthrough in our understanding of the carbon cycle. So there have been long-standing connections between the military community, uh, the national security establishment, and climate science uh, for many, many decades. And so the idea that this was new um, or that the military has not been deeply involved in this is, is not accurate. Uh, and therefore, I think this sort of interest in readiness and uh, physical systems made the military very early on aware of and contributed to an understanding of climate science. So uh, that's just a, a sense of the, the, deep, <laughs> the deep history, if you will. More recently, the military has long recognized the impact of climate change on national security. As early as the 1970s, there are, C there are, there are unclassified CIA memos um, and military research on climate change and the impact of climate change on international security. So this issue has a long history. And what we're seeing now, an outspokenness of the military on these on these issues is really about their commitment to their mission and the the facts that they have been dealing with for a very long time. You know, you have put together on Lawfare a number of military and intelligence assessments over a long period of time that you know, show a consistent concern both on the sort of effects on, on individual bases from the military side, but also these geopolitical uh, destabilization concerns that you articulated earlier. 
have a lot of grounding in a fairly large volume of work product from both the military and the intelligence community. Is that fair? Oh, yes. And so climate change has been listed in almost every annual worldwide threat assessment for at least the last decade. I can't speak to what's happening in the in the classified documents, but um, the national, excuse me, the quadrennial defense review has listed uh, climate change as a national security threat. And it is something that planners are integrating into their plans for bases. And it's not just, I would say it's not just the military, it's also Congress. Now, Congress has been later to the party than the military. But at the same time, that report that I mentioned a little bit earlier, which was released in January, uh, about the 10 most vulnerable military installations was required by Congress. And so I think there is a bipartisan concern about climate change on military readiness, uh, as well as longstanding concern among um, pretty much every senior official in the military about the impact of climate change on their operations. I mean, just this week, the chief of staff of the Air Force testified that um, they were preparing for climate change. They see climate change as a threat. Um, and he was not the only one. I mean, in the last month, I, th I think it's four different military officials have testified in front of Congress about the impact of climate change on military operations. They all see it as real. They all see it as a challenge uh, or even as a threat. So this is not uh, something that is a creature of the Obama administration. It has persisted into the current administration, even as the president calls climate change a Chinese hoax. That's right. I think you see, I mean, you see it as early as the George W. Bush administration um, in public documents. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't, there was a full embrace during the George W. Bush administration, uh, but there were some reports, um, specifically a sort of notorious 2003 report that was commissioned by the Pentagon that was done by outside people that really considered sort of like black swan events or gray swan events that could trigger geopolitical instability. It is the Obama administration where you see a more public and consistent embrace of this, but that has really continued through the Trump administration with the exception, with pretty much no exception until until the present. And those people who at present are contesting national uh, climate change as a national security issue are really not military officials or even for the most part, political appointees in the administration. They have, for the most part, uh, including former Secretary James Mattis, uh, acknowledged the threat that climate change poses. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
What about other countries? So you really recently wrote a very interesting piece on Lawfare about uh, Chinese uh, recognition that their national security interests were being challenged by climate change. Talk a little bit about the sort of evolution of the Chinese attitude on this subject and also of sort of how other countries, particularly countries with sort of active military postures and uh, think about threats emanating from from this set of problems. So there is a wide range of views about this in various militaries and the Chinese have really, as we talk about in the piece, have changed their stance somewhat. And that change of stance is not because they only recently have uh, come to see climate change as a scientific reality or scientific truth. Um, They've accepted climate science for a long time, but they were very resistant to characterizing climate change as a national security issue. And that's because of their concerns about the impact that classifying it as such might have on their sovereignty. They are concerned about saying that climate change was a really big issue for them because they didn't want that to be used as a way to force them to essentially change their economic development model. China is the world's largest emitter and their development is heavily reliant on burning very large amounts of coal and oil and I think that they, for a long time, were concerned that if they admitted that it was a national security threat or even just a threat that everyone should be asked to equally address, that they would have to change their behavior. And that was not something that they wanted to do, or at least not something that they wanted to do at the behest of other countries. So they've really resisted this characterization until recently. They have come to see that there are both domestic and international advantages to characterizing climate change as a national security issue, uh, including diplomatic advantages. They see a huge gap that uh, the Trump administration has opened up by announcing its intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, and they want to fill that gap, and they see a lot of uh, soft power benefits from doing so. Now, whether that actually changes their behavior is a different question, as we articulate in the piece. But I think that they have sort of come around on this issue. Other militaries have different perspectives. So New Zealand recently put out, I think it was a white paper on climate change as a national security issue. They are pretty much in lockstep with the U.S. military's view. They see it as destabilizing. They see concerns about their installations, about refugees, and about humanitarian crises. And so that is a concern. I'm not an expert on Russia, but my understanding is that the Russians don't necessarily see it as a national security issue. They see enormous benefits from climate change, including increasing agricultural land in their country. Uh, They will obviously become a more temperate country. They see advantages in the Arctic. And so I, I don't believe, although again, I'm not an expert, that they have embraced climate change as a national security threat. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I do think they have a plausible argument that for all the reasons that other countries are afraid of, not that much of the landmass of Russia is going to become uninhabitable as a result of climate change. But you could imagine large swaths of the uh, of the Siberian 
areas as well as the Far East that are currently mostly uninhabitable from a Russian, you know, for large numbers of people anyway, uh, as well as the the Russian Arctic becoming over reasonable periods of time habitable and productive in a way that is not cost effective for them to be productive now. Are they wrong about that? I think as with everything else when it comes to climate change, it really depends about the time period over which you're referring. So yes, that is certainly true within any policy time frame that we currently use. They're not totally wrong about that. I think at least in the next 50 to 100 years or possibly even 200 years, they may be wrong about that if we continue to emit at the levels at which we're emitting, they may be wrong about that in the long, long term, because a lot of people may see exactly that and say, I want to move to Russia because that's <laughs> that's where things don't look so bad. And so they may, again, this is completely speculative, but the time frame really matters here. And it may be- You're envisioning be, major net migration from Bangladesh to the Soviet, uh, to the Russian Far East. Yeah, I think that that is certainly a possibility. I'm not sure that it's the most likely possibility, but I, I certainly think that, again, depending on the time frame over which you're looking, they may have it good, they may have it not so good. It, it really depends. And again, it's it's so hard to predict because all of the impacts, uh, the social impacts of climate change are mediated through human institutions. So like, it's entirely possible that people will want to migrate to Russia and they won't be able to, or that by then, I don't know, uh, we have some other form of international organization in Russia as a country no longer exists in the form that we know it. I mean, again, we're talking over 200, 250, 300 years. It's just, it's it's obviously impossible to predict. But you're not wrong that in the short term, they look to be sort of winners from climate change. Similar with the Canadians, who obviously have a very different political stance towards climate change, but who also stand to benefit from a more temperate climate. Right. The more the more north you are, the larger your land mass, the more you have to benefit from Arctic navigability, and the lower your population density, the more likely you are to at least have mixed feelings about this. Yeah, I think that that's right. And that's not to say that there won't that it's all benefit for those countries. I think fires, forest fires in the far north are likely to become more likely. Uh, the composition they make both of those countries are important exporters of timber and the composition of their forests are likely to change. And there is a limit to agricultural productivity gains just by virtue of the farther north you go, the less sunlight you have and the more sunlight you have uh, at certain times of year. So it's not it's not like there won't be any negative impacts. I'm not trying to paint a picture where these countries only benefit from climate change, but, uh, but yes, on net, they seem to be, especially compared to countries in the tropics, winners. All right. So what turns on the question of whether we think about this in a national security context or not? So if you think about it in a sort of traditional ecological context, you say, wow, we have emissions that are driving 
you know, ch changes that we cannot control and that are in the aggregate highly negative. We have disruptions to human communities as well as to natural ecosystems that could be in both cases uh, severe or even catastrophic. Uh, and we have danger, damage to the planet uh, that, you know, we don't necessarily know what we're doing. Therefore, we have to do something both in the way of adaptation and also in the way of controlling emissions or limiting emissions or reducing emissions. Uh, if you think about it in the national security context, it seems to me you say all of those same things uh, with the additional caveat that uh, and therefore bad things will happen in the national security arena like you know greater instability uh, and so my question is what does the what does the use of this particular lens add to the conversation other than uh, perhaps a sense of urgency because as you described earlier you do harness that urgency, the urgency with which we think about national security issues for better or for worse, you harness that, as well as you, it gives you, you talk about the impact on, on military facilities around the world. What else does this add to the conversation? Yeah, that's a really great and difficult question to answer. I think the first thing is planning. I think that the military and national security establishment more generally needs to be aware of and think about climate change in a national security context uh, because it will unquestionably have impacts. And those impacts are going to be very, very difficult to predict. And so planning and arranging contingencies and just like knowing, again, as we were talking about with Russia and China, knowing how those countries understand climate change, who's going to benefit, what's going to happen. Obviously, there's no way to predict exactly what's going to happen, but planning is really important to national security. And I think that that is, to me, most fundamentally preparedness is critical. And that is why I see climate change as a national security issue and the importance of national uh, cl classifying climate change as a national security issue. Um, I do think, though, that as we discussed earlier, Urgency is a huge part of this conversation, and I think that that's why you have Elizabeth Warren, who's not necessarily known for her military expertise, asking these questions of the Army Chief of Staff at a hearing. She obviously wants to, she, and I don't mean to single her out, a lot of people want to use the urgency of national security to their advantage. And I do think that they're not wrong that urgency is called for and the urgency is necessary in this context where even the Paris Agreement, if fully implemented, is not going to put us on track to reduce emissions as fast as we need to. Now, I'm really ambivalent about that because using climate change as a national security issue is actually outcome neutral. One way to understand calling climate change a national security issue is to think about it as time is running short, let's mobilize to reduce emissions in order to avert a national security crisis. But it can also support other politics. Including the opposite politics, right? 
the exact opposite politics. Let's only think about the national security consequences, mitigate those, and let the rest of the world, you know, we'll just absorb the impacts as long as we can deal with the national security impacts. The rest of it is just human costs. Exactly. Climate change, we literally cannot unilaterally stop it. The United States cannot by itself do anything about this. By definition, let's build the wall, start arming ourselves to the teeth to ensure that we have access to natural resources and through the use of our world-class military if necessary. It's um, called the politics, I believe it's called the politics of the lifeboat. So in that sense, it really is important for us to make sure that we clarify that while climate change is a national security threat, we shouldn't think of it exclusively through a national security paradigm. All right, I want to talk I want to talk about one other area where I think it is super useful to think of this through a national security lens and you uh, alluded to it briefly before, but I want to flesh it out particularly which is migration. The population density in the areas of the world that are most likely to be most affected and and to be made most uninhabitable is generally higher than the population density in the areas that are going to either who are going to be less affected and my my joking example of mass migration from Bangladesh to you know to Siberia is only sort of a joke in the sense that I do think we're going to see as a result of areas of high population density that are low lying and hot becoming less and less habitable, people will move out of them and people will go to places that are uh, or try to go to places that are less population dense, less hot and less low lying. And the result of that will or it is reasonable to expect will be conflict. I mean, obviously, it is more complicated than that. But it seems to me that one of the one of the particularly useful things about thinking about climate in the in the national security context it forces you to think about the consequences of migration, which we're already dealing with in a national security framework. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I personally view migration as the most certain and potentially most disruptive consequence for national security of climate change. So when we talk about conflict, whether it's interstate or intrastate conflict, it's really kind of impossible to predict um, and is always mediated through institutions. So a really good example, I think, is the drought in the Middle East, which I don't mean to pick on the army chief of staff guy. He I keep bringing him up, but he recently said, he pointed to Syria and said, we know that the Syrian civil Civil War was like long term, one of the underlying causes of that conflict was drought. And that is true. uh, But Jordan uh, and Lebanon experience the same drought, and they're not in a conflict. So or they don't, they're not in a civil war right now. So it is true that conflict may or may not arise from climate change. But one thing that is 100% certain to happen is huge and possibly unthinkable waves of migration. So the UN has estimated that up to 200 million, there will be up to 200 million climate refugees by 2050. The World Bank has said that we could see 140 million internally displaced persons as a result of climate change. And it's not, by the way, just going to be in poor countries, although they will bear the brunt of it. Um, Internally, there were a lot of internally displaced people after Hurricane Katrina in the United States. 
But the real issue is that for me, we have no way of dealing with this issue internationally. There's no easy recognition for this category of people under international law, which makes sense because if you think about it, climate-induced migration is not a single category of migrants. You have people who are going to be displaced by storms and extreme weather. Some, but not all, natural disasters will result in displacement. You'll have people moving due to long-term climate shifts. You'll have people moving due to conflict exacerbated by climate change, some of which migration will be voluntary, some of which will not be voluntary. And in cases of some of these low-lying South Pacific nations, you'll have people displaced by rising water that literally will not have a country anymore, or at least no more territorial country or uh, territorial country in their traditional homeland. Okay, but I mean, it seems to me that you've just put your finger on something that's a bit of a puzzle here, right? Which is, you're going to have all these people who are migrating ultimately as a result of climate. And with the exception of the people whose islands are disappearing, uh, we will generally not attribute it to climate, right? So the Syrian civil war is a really interesting example. This is probably climate is climate change is one driver behind this conflict. And yet nobody thinks of the Syrian refugee problem, except you, <laughs> as a climate-induced problem. People think of Syrian refugees as induced by the, you know, the, the Arab Spring, though Bashar Assad being a brutal dictator, right? A, a crackdown, a failed revolution. People have all kinds of descriptors for that. And yet we very instinctively talk about it in t more in terms of the proximate causes than in terms of these long-term drivers. And so my question is, to what extent and over what time frame will it be obvious enough that these migration effects are climate-related that we actually attribute it to that rather than to the more proximate causes that, you know, when people get up in the morning and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave Guatemala and, you know, go to the southern border of the United States, which is, by the way, a climate-driven migration, among other things, we actually think about it that way, rather than thinking about it as a, you know, gang pressure thing or, uh, you know, coffee harvest thing or, uh, you know, all the other things that are kind of more immediately, proximately causal with respect to those migrations. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I guess I would just flip it back on you and say, like, what turns on attribution? Like, why do or do we not need to think of these these people who are moving as driven by climate? And I think the answer to that is, for refugee law purposes, like if we want to give these people some protection under international law or even under domestic law, we sort of want to know. I guess my response to that is it doesn't really matter at this particular moment in time because refugee law does not currently accommodate probably any of these people except for the people from the Marshall Islands. No, but I think there's another I think there's another reason why the why the attribution matters, which is that if your argument is and I think it is and I certainly share it that we need to deal with the emissions problem in order to avert the worst consequences of these national security effects. 
that the more we can tell ourselves as we see the national security effects that they're actually caused by other things, the, the less we are forced to say this is a climate effect, the, the easier it is to deal with the proximate causes or think you're dealing with the proximate causes and avert your eyes from the actual driver. Yeah, I guess I, guess I just, that is always political to me and we can continue until, I mean, if, if the question is, when will we no longer be able to deny that, refu- that refugees and migrants are being driven by climate change? I mean, I think that factually we're already there. But I think if the question is politically, when will we get there? The answer is whenever we want to get there. And I don't personally think that refugees and migrants are going to be the thing that flips the switch for us. And I think that by the time we are in such a state that it is like there's unstoppable migration, basically, it doesn't I don't quite want to say this because I don't mean it to the full extent of what I'm about to say. But at that point, it's probably not going to matter because we'll probably have be seeing we'll be seeing the effects of climate change from emissions that we released decades ago. I mean, the problem the problem with climate change is that the the cause and effect are so far separated. So by the time we start seeing the effects both on the atmosphere and on migration in a way that is just like completely undeniable, even to people who continue to deny climate change in the face of literally 100 years of science, it will be too late. Because <laughs> there are certain processes that we can reverse, and there are certain processes that we can't. And by that time, I'm going to guess that the oceans are so acidic that many ecosystems will have collapsed, that the ice sheets will be so destabilized, if not melted, that we will not be able to put them back together, even when we have, even if we're shooting up, like, sulfates into the atmosphere to reflect sun sunlight to physically cool the earth that doesn't stop other geophysical processes. So it's like a really dark place if you want to end here. But I think by the time the refugee crisis gets so bad that it is completely undeniable, and I would argue like it, we're already there, but obviously not everyone agrees, we will probably, it'll probably be too late to actually manage the climate at a level that is safe for everyone on earth. On that cheerful note, Michelle Melton, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Michelle Melton for coming on the show. If you haven't yet, please take a second to share the Lawfare Podcast on social media and give us a five-star rating and review wherever you found us. You can also purchase Lawfare swag at our online store, www.thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patiahal, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. 
jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.